Hey, just a quick heads up. The episode you're about to listen to, Nightmare Alley, directed by Guillermo del Toro, is an episode that contains descriptions of body horror, gore, gaslighting, emotional manipulation, and miscarriage. Our hosts rank this as existentially disconcerting. After the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so expect spoilers. Oh, and while I've got you here, you can become part of our show by heading over to Patreon at progressivelyhorrified.patreon.com. As a show patron, you'll get extra episodes, all episodes a week early, and most importantly, you'll get to help us keep the lights on. Now, let's get to the show. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about Guillermo del Toro's stylish noir, Nightmare Alley. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to invade your house and find queer content in all of your favorite movies. My co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Y'all, did Guillermo del Toro just bring back the erotic thriller? Because I'm here for it. Tell me the version of this movie made in 1994 doesn't star Michael Douglas. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is is Bradley Cooper our Michael Douglas? We'll discuss. And and we picked her up at the spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comic artist Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I really want to talk to Guillermo del Toro about his preoccupation with fetuses in jars. Uh, I really don't want to, but I can understand why uh, that would be a thing. I want to take him to the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. <laughs> I'm sure he's been. Uh, I'm sure and he's our, donated to it. <laughs> and our special guest tonight, wonderful editor at Athenaeum and friend of the podcast, Julia McCarthy. Julia, how are you? Hello. I am so excited to be here. Longtime listener, first time caller. So yeah. happy to have you here. Thank for real. Uh, and I am very excited to talk about this movie. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro never fails to uh, dis- never fails to bore. Uh, I, hold on, I'm I'm mincing my words. <laughs> never fails to pour. Hmm. No, no, hold on. This is bad. I'm bad at English. <laughs> cut this. Cut this. Cut this. Vino cut, cut the whole thing. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Guillermo del Toro does directing good. Sentence over. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Guillermo del Toro because I, I think I've said on here before, like I am a fan of movies that take a big shot. Like they really try to do something, even if they fail, I would much rather see, you know, something that really doesn't quite do it, but really tries like say a Jupiter ascending. I'd rather mm-hmm. watch that 10 times over than watch a movie that succeeds at being mediocre. You see, my example of that was going to be Cloud Atlas, which just oh. makes me think, oh no, the Wachowski sisters. Bless them. Bless they, them all. I will say, I fucking love Matrix Resurrections. I know it's yeah. neither here nor there. We're talking about Nightmare Alley. Just going to say, Matrix Resurrections, fucking love it. There's not a There's- single Wachowski's movie that I don't think starts with them just walking up to the plate and pointing at the stands. Like, <laughs> it's going to go... It's going to go so deep and it, it doesn't always quite get there, but it's always a shot. It's the creative spirit I want to bring to things. Just that <laughs> sense of like, if we're going for it, go for broke. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are plenty of directors who 
have put out dozens of mildly successful movies that will be forgotten long before The Matrix is forgotten, you know? Yeah. And this movie, yes, I will also say, is Guillermo del Toro doing the thing that he does best. It's a bit more of a slow burn than some of his other films, but it's gorgeous to look at. All of the actors are bringing their A-game. So yeah, Guillermo del Toro directed it. He also co-wrote it along with Kim Morgan, and it's based on a book by William Lindsay Gresham, uh, which has been adapted before. And this is not like a remake of that, but like a re-adaptation of the book in that it's, it's pretty different from the original. My understanding is that this Guillermo del Toro version is closer to the book than the original because the original came out in the era of, hey, no unhappy endings in movies. Whereas this movie is like, what if we just did the bleakest shit imaginable? But it's so good. It's so good. This is one of my favorite endings of any movies I've ever seen. Like, I love this final scene. But I have to say, so I made the mistake, maybe not mistake, of watching the, I think it's 1944 film um, a few weeks ago. So I was kind of in conversation with that as I was watching this movie, which for better or worse, because I kept being like, well, that's not how it was. But I thought the ending, when I saw the 1944 one, I was like, and this is where they should end it. And then Del Toro ended it there where I had been like, this would have been the perfect, like painful place to stop this as opposed to the more Hollywood ending that they gave it. So I was really appreciative that it ended on that miserable note. Yes. <laughs> That's what I wanted out of this. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, another big takeaway I had of this movie is if that Oscar Isaac Metal Gear Solid movie gets off the ground and we get a whole franchise going, Kate Blanchett as the boss. Mm. Uh, speaking of Kate Blanchett, this movie stars like a murderer's row of actors and actresses. The main character is Bradley Cooper. Uh, there's Kate Blanchett. There's Tony Collette. There's Willem Dafoe being his Willem Dafoeist. Uh, there's Richard Jenkins. There's Rooney Mara. There's Ron Perlman. There's Mary Steenburgen. And I'm not even, there's still like, award-winning actors that i'm not naming in that like in this movie like oh david straight is in this movie the blake nelson with an incredible yeah. cameo yes that was i wrote that i underlined it i was so excited about that one i will say for this movie in terms of queer content this movie stars kate blanchett and rooney mara and they have no scenes together so that feels a little homophobic <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, all of the the ladies only being allowed to have their scenes with B. Coops himself was a little bit of a bummer for me. But at least, you know, they they gave them a little more agency than I was expecting. So the IMDb description of this uh, is an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Uh, which is a description of the last half hour of this movie or so. This movie yeah. feels... So much like a play in that there is act one with its sets and cast of actors. And then there is a very different act two with its different sets and cast of new supporting actors. There is such a, and now here's your intermission. Go get refill your drink, have some new snacks, use the bathroom. And now for act two of the film. Yeah, and then like they there is all the set pieces to really shiny, beautiful things. Yeah, there is an hour prologue and then a 90 minute film. Yeah, they literally could have closed with a curtain on the like car driving away in the middle of this. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about what happens in the movie. If we're going to go through a kind of recap here, we meet Stanton Carlisle and he will also be called Stan throughout this. This is Bradley Cooper. 
a man who likes to drag bodies into holes under the houses and then set the whole house on fire. It's a little confused as to the logic of that. But uh, yes. he, this is this is what we get to know about him before he just goes and wanders and do a circus is that he has dragged some sort of body into a hole and then set the whole house on fire, which seems very dramatic. So I really like Bradley Cooper in this movie, but I definitely had a little issue with him being the one in this role because everyone treats this Stan character like he is in his like young, like mid 20s. And yeah. Bradley Cooper is extremely 46 looking. Not to say he isn't like gorgeous and an incredible 46, but very much 46. I hate to be the one to be like, well, in the original movie, but there was a lot more attention to Stan's character because you could tell he was a little seedier. He was already a little more manipulative. And no one would give him information. No one would let him in. And in this one, it felt like they just immediately were like, oh, here's the co- here are the codes. Come learn. Welcome to the circus. Here, have this thing. Oh, here, I'm going to kiss you. Here's my boob. Here's a hand job. And I was just like, oh, they're really giving him kind of everything without him having to ask for it that much. And it frustrated me. But now I'm seeing it as maybe, oh, no, that is probably an indictment of the basic guy who yes. walks in and gets married. Hand- he- Bails upwards and thinks he climbed a mountain. Mm-hmm. Sure does. And he doesn't yeah. talk for like the first 20 minutes yeah. of the movie. Like for a while, I thought like he was mute. Yeah. And he was like traumatized because of the spire thing and he was mute. But now I haven't seen the original movie. I haven't read the book. So I was going into this cold. I kind of appreciated the movie that way because I felt like everything was considered. You know, it's like here's this fucking crazy carnival, like fun house full of demons and these incredible like sets like you still have some really good interactions with the folks at the uh at the carnival and then you have like the the sort of art deco metropolis paradise yeah, i don't i don't good. know if you guys watched the hbo sort of behind the movie making of bit that went with this but like they built the whole ass circus there's a whole that circus is not like one cut here one bit here it is a whole circus that they built on location so when they like walk through the circus like it's all one big set that's awesome i feel that so much in every del toro movie where there's this level of consideration and love for everything that it's just really palpable this circus feels like such a natural setting for a guillermo del toro movie it's almost weird he's never done a circus until now yeah it's actually weird hasn't watching this i think it was weird to me the amount of not paranormal this movie was (laughs) because i feel like Guillermo del Toro always takes it that extra bump over into weird and paranormal. And there's never really a question in this movie of things being paranormal. In fact, like they go out of their way to explain how being a mentalist works. I think it's now that he won the Oscar, he can stop chasing after that genre movie Oscar bait (laughs) and get back to his uh, character driven period piece. I I thought it was so clever in the sense that, you know, I saw the trailer for this and it was before I knew anything about, you know, the original movie. And I was like, still Torah, it's going to be supernatural, blah, 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 like the real monsters are the humans. And it was still very much that, but stripping away, there's no monster. It's literally just you're with yourself and your humanity and nothing supernatural is happening. And it's still the worst, most depraved thing. And I thought that was really clever. And I don't know if it was intentional for him to be like, I'm not going to do any supernatural, but I thought it was... Or I think definitely the marketing played into that. Well, like you said, the trailer definitely played it up that like, this is all real and going across into the supernatural. Uh-huh. And it reminded me of the marketing for The Prestige, 
where all the trailers for the Perseus were like, Christian Bale is an evil wizard. It's <laughs> it's magic is real, and Christian Bale is doing some real evil wizard shit. And then you watch the movie, it's like, no, that's not the movie yeah. at all. And that's kind of the point is that we tricked you. Yeah. But, Everything you know. is grounded and realistic until David Bowie Tesla invents some crazy shit that only David Bowie Nikola Tesla could invent. Well, yeah. I love Great movie, The Prestige. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we'll like that, cover it one day. That's a good one. Yeah. I feel like this movie did remind me a lot of The Prestige and like The Illusionist, but this movie was a lot more decisive about its character arc. It had memorable women characters and, and the twists and turns of these characters. I was very impressed. I don't, I don't know if, how much in the book these characters are, have this much agency. I will say, it's funny you mention The Illusionist because this movie didn't really remind me of that. Because the illusionist was not memorable enough for me to be reminded of it. <laughs> yeah, take that, Edward Norton and Jessica Biel. Slam from uh, this fucking piece of shit asshole with my asshole opinions. Edward Norton's crying right now because of you. I really, really liked Rounders. Rounders is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Um, Feel better, I, Edward Everybody likes Primal Fear, right? Primal Fear is great. God, I haven't seen that since like... I was a child. That's the first movie where Edward Norton plays what seems to be a nice guy who turns out to be a psychopath. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He's like the late 90s James Spader. Ooh. Sorry. That's my hot take. <laughs> okay. So Stan comes to the carnival. He wanders around seemingly aimlessly for a while. Goes to the geek show where he sees a, a man eat a live chicken. There's a real, is he man or is he beast? And I really enjoy Willem Dafoe here slipping the, if you don't leave the show, there is an extra 25 cents you're going to need to pay me to watch this man eat a chicken now that you're here <laughs> into his pitch for the thing, which was fantastic. He tries to leave and gets Dafoe, called out by like trying to sell them by being like, this is science. This is important science you're witnessing. His character would have had a great time on Facebook. So eventually he gets called out by the major who's played by uh, Mark Pavanelli. And Bruno, who's played by Ron Perlman, both are fantastic uh, sideshow acts. They're going to throw him out because they are mutual heavies. And Clem decides to recruit him to come do some work breaking down the carnival tent and eventually ends up taking the, the, the money he should have paid for the geek show out of the money he's supposed to pay him. And then eventually invites him to come along to the next place and help them set up here. So he's just taken, uh, taken Stan under his wing, under his creepy bat wing. And you could just walk into a place, not say a word, and just get offered a job. Why am I suddenly envious of the economy of the Great Depression? Yeah, this is like right at the beginning of WW2. I did appreciate how they were like, we have to remind you guys. Occasionally they'll be like, oh, there was an invasion of Poland or like, oh, the war. And like, you don't really feel it at all in the movie, like very obviously. Yeah. Clearly with the trauma and just the situations of these folks, obviously there's war there, but I just thought it was really funny that they almost had to pop in and remind us like there's a war going on. Yeah, I appreciate that. No matter the era and no matter the war, we get to see stories of rich American people not giving a fuck about it. Yeah, (laughs) things never change. With Willem Dafoe's, his line that was like, that crap that looks like Chaplin just invaded Poland. I love that line. I took a Charlie Chaplin class in college where one of the final assignments was we had to recreate it. So we did the one where he's the angels and stuff like that. We all dressed separately and then met up like at the place we're going to film outside the library because it's UPenn. It's like there's flowers, flat grass, 
giant metal peace sign. Great place to do heaven. So I'm the first one there for my group. So I'm like, okay, let me just do some pratfalls and whatnot. And at one point, I just look over and suddenly there's 30 people just crowded around the library window staring out. Is it you? Yeah, just staring at me. And eventually someone comes out like, is this a protest? Like, (laughs) why are you dressed as fairy Hitler? (laughs) What is it? It's performance art, baby. I excuse me. I'm doing this for a grade. This is part of my educational experience. What just, better though? I just spent the first fifteen minutes practical. of this movie waiting for Clem to say, "I'm something of a con man myself." <laughs> uh, <sighs> what a mistake! Uh, I just we all seen Spider-Man. Yeah. Yes. yes. Oh yeah. Because oh, oh, wait, not Spider-Man. I'm something of a scientist myself. In that, I lost it. I. <laughs> lost it i have to say that was like the movie with the most fan service that still was just like excellent and pulled it all off and i was like i mean maybe i'm saying that because i am the fan that was being serviced but i thought it was just really anyway yeah so speaking of people being serviced stan goes to take a <laughs> bath at xena's xena is played by tony collette she is the fortune teller character she has sort of a whole cabin with a bathtub and everything she's charging people a dime to take yeah. a bath i was a little confused about that does she how she has the cabin if she travels with them or if she stays there and just various circuses come through and she is the fortune teller at all of them. I was a little confused how that cabin situation worked. Juliet, if you've read the book and you know the story, please tell us. I haven't read the book. In the original movie, I think what happens is that she travels with the circus, but then they rent like a hotel room rather than this like entire building. So that was confusing to me. I didn't understand how they had this whole beautiful space with a bathtub and no doors but i did appreciate that the first person to show skin was bradley cooper rather than one of the ladies so progressive (laughs) bradley cooper in the bathtub good stuff and this house is like it's not just like a cabin you know that you set up like this is an installation there's a a neon sign on it which i'm like why are you have a neon sign on this thing that is surrounded by a carnival in the middle of nowhere, but whatever. Like, who is going to this carnival? My idea is that they have this home base, and this is where they go when they like, or they do a tour, and then they come back here, and then they I do mean, their like a, thing. Well, it's a fairground. I mean, you can there's spaces like that all over now, and I'm sure there were a lot more then. You know, where you can just go set up and put all this, put the stuff up there. Um, there's a carnival that came to my town every year growing up. It was built, it was put up five minutes away from the downtown. I have no idea where the fuck they are in relation to the town. It looks like they are just in, I don't know, the Australian outback. (laughs) They're definitely like in a series of Andrew Wyeth paintings out there, especially that first house where it's like out. I hope just how much I liked this movie that the nits I'm picking are, where is this circus set up? (laughs) This is a very stupid thing I'm making jokes about, but it's all I've got. It's a very good movie that I liked a lot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All the interviews I've read about this, Bradley Cooper seems legitimately a bit excited to get his dick out in this movie. (laughs) He was just like, I was very excited when I saw the script that, you know, it felt like it was really called for and I was wanting to get into it. I've got to be honest. I'm less interested in Bradley Cooper's reaction to that scene than I am Tony Collette's. Mm, Yeah. I mean, yeah, speaking of agency. Right. (laughs) This is where uh, Zena, who is played by Tony Collette, 
And her partner, Pete, who's played by David Strait there, and who's an older man, they're clearly together, but it's often unclear in what capacity. Uh, but they, they live here. And as soon as Pete goes to go do his stuff, Tony Collette uh, decides to greet, <laughs> greet Stan in the most friendly way possible. Just uh, give him a bathtub hand job. It's funny because <laughs> Pete also kind of suggests that like the bath is going to have some sort of uh climax perhaps yeah because he's like maybe she'll read your fortune after your bath <laughs> anyway i'm gonna speak french and leave i loved pete <laughs> i loved pete so much i love him as an actor and i love the i just love the character too it, it's interesting you were talking about julia how everybody sort of lets him in in this movie and i i think that's i think that's guillermo del toro to some extent because i think he really paints these two different worlds as the civilized world of the second half of the movie, nobody has each other's backs. Everybody hates each other. They're all sniping at each other. Everybody's horrible. Yeah. And in the circus where all the freaks live, everybody's got each other's back, yeah. which feels really inspired less by Nightmare Alley and more by movies like Freaks, where yeah. it's weird found circus. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I actually, and I looked up beforehand, like an interview with Del Toro talking about this and at one point. He talks about how he's very empathetic with characters, and so it's very difficult for him to put them in tragic situations. And I really felt that with Bradley Cooper's character, where like even though he's doing these horrible things and he's going over the top and and putting this man in the ground, setting it on fire, even though it's in the middle of nowhere, so it's clearly very unnecessary. But yeah. but character is treated with a lot of love and and generosity in a way that I wasn't present in the original film. And not to go back to that, but it does create this very different dynamic and. To me, it kind of lessens the tension, but you're right. I think it does open you up to kind of that, the duality of the openness of a carnival and, and people accepting you as you are versus, the, and yeah, proper society just full of nasty people. Yeah. I have a topic that I want to throw out to the round table we have assembled here. Yes. The human-headed spider. Thoughts. <laughs> Dope. Get it, girl. Oh my god, like this carnival, that's the thing about Guillermo, you talk about Guillermo del Toro and the amount of consideration and the love that he has for these ideas, and you can tell when his love is there, like in these carnival sets and the ideas, because that funhouse and the spider lady. The funhouse, having lived in the South for a good chunk of my life, feels very real. That feels very much like something that somebody has been in in real life and was like, you know what I want to put in this? The spider lady feels like a dream gear Vodotoro had. <laughs> like, I'm like, put that in the background of the scene. I Is wanted that? more of that crazy shit. Like I yeah. wanted the spider lady and then like the lion guy. And like, there's a snake guy who was like contortionist and with kind of it very 1940s. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like, like the only person of color in the film. So there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. It, noticeable to me that there weren't very many animals in it and i don't know if that's like on screen intentional like anything thematic there it's about like humans are the vampires to other humans or if it's just the practical ethical considerations that really i think any filmmaker doing films about the circus needs to consider in that man there was a lot of animal cruelty how do i depict that animal cruelty without myself doing a shitload of animal cruelty yeah tiger king also showed us there's really no ethical way to make a movie using big 
like large mammal, large animals. Yeah. I do wonder how much of that is just the history of carnivals versus circuses and that idea of Barnum and his animal and his like abusing the hell out of elephants versus these more traveling shows that are more focused on making the humans the spectacle and the freak. And I thought that was really interesting and something I don't know a lot about. But I, I wonder, you know, again, leaning into like the humans are the actual monsters. It yeah. Kind of, it's that. It, it lends itself to that. You're right. I think was the only animal we saw a chicken. A poor yes. Chicken? Oh yes, a series of chickens. Yeah. yeah, and I do think whatever themes there are in choosing not to show mm-hmm. animal cruelty, aside from just sometimes it's really nice to not have animal cruelty. Yeah, yeah. in general, I decide on, on the side of do CGI animals. I will give you an extra benefit of the doubt and not judge it not seeming totally real if it means we're not doing an animal cruelty. But I think it all is just part of the theme of humans being predator to humans. Mm-hmm. Let's get into that because we're about yeah. to get a lot more of Clem here because everybody else has sort of their own skills, their own trade or their own uh, some, something about them that they perform. Clem, on the other hand, uh, is, is sort of a ringmaster, but also runs the freak show side of things. He has his jars full of uh, dead babies, which... Usually a freak show like this would have animals of some sort. It would have, you know, whether they were alive or dead, three-headed sheep and things like that. And this is very specifically like deformed humans. And he's in this section. Just be warned about that if you watched the movie yeah. yet. Uh, That's definitely also, like that Del Toro touch. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything textually to support that, but that just felt like some Del Toro shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen the geek already at this point. And in... In this section, he gets loose. He is a, a man who who acts and seems in some ways subhuman, who is, we don't know what's going on with him at this point, but he gets loose and is running around the circus and they need to catch him. And Clem gets Stan to help him with this. And Stan ends up tracking him down into this place and is, is trying to talk nicely to him when Clem shows back up and the geek freaks out and Stan decides to stop him by beating him half to death, which is... A real stand solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. I figured out why I associate Del Toro with babies in jars. It's because Del Toro and his likeness were in Death Stranding, and that game had the baby in the jar, and all of the marketing and trailers were Guillermo Del Toro's character running around with the baby in the jar. I love that game. So wild. But uh, also Devil's Backbone, there's a whole thing. The, the Devil's Backbone title comes from this baby, uh, baby in a jar. He's I, he's really fascinated with babies in a jar in a way that I do not understand. Um, I mean, it's goth. It's not appealing to me. Yeah. He's goth and I love him. I want to <laughs> hug him. He's like. He does seem like he would be a good hug. Like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Grandma the Torres seems like he'd be a great hugger. Man, you know what? Of all the directors and all the. Yeah, he's number one for hug. He's Have number been. one. David Lynch is at the bottom. <laughs> Dan sort of infiltrates Zena and Pete's act to some extent. They invite him along and he's squirming his way into doing more and more of it. They've got him sort of working the crowd. Uh, they tell him to put on a southern accent in the south and put on a northern accent in the north and it'll be fine, which that totally works. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're doing sort of a fortune telling sort of mentalism act to some extent, but they specifically do not go with what they call a spook show which is they don't pretend to see dead people or communicate with the dead and manipulate people in that way. They just pretend to know things 
that they, they ascertain through a series of tricks and signals back and forth with one another. Uh, yeah, like, you do- want to keep it to pretending to be Xavier. Let's yeah. see how fast Xavier shit gets fucked. Yeah, they did go a little bit, you know, ghost. Xena does it to uh, to make up for Pete screwing up at one point. Yeah. She thinks on her feet and ends up manipulating this woman into thinking she's talking to her dead child. And then yeah. the woman seeks her out later on. She's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not. I didn't actually talk to her. I just like, I panicked and had to, yeah. to pretend. Well, I wanted to talk about that because it becomes this really big point at this part of the film where they talk about shut-eye and how dangerous shut-eye is. And there's a, a, a phenomenon with mediums. And this terminology goes way back. And I learned this from the podcast owner, Ross and Carrie, available on Maxima Fun. But the open-eye mediums will be pretty honest about, we're doing an act, this is a performance. It's like a lot of magic shows where it's like, we're doing a trick. But you're not going to be able to figure out how we're doing it. And that's part of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And then the shut-eye psychic believes that they have power Mm -hmm. and therefore they're not in control of their power because they are, they are now deluding themselves. I thought there was, I think what's so interesting is that it's not really the shut, the shut-eye that Stan gets like. At one point, he's hooked up to the lie detector test. They're like, do you have powers? And he's clearly lying and knows he's lying. Yeah. And yet, what his shut-in is that he is just so supremely confident in being able to read people. He's just confident in these in himself to the point of being super-powered. Not, yeah. But I think it's an interesting moral line that the movie draws. And I think it's the correct one where it's, look, it's all fun and games when we're acting like we can predict what's in people's pockets. Messing with the grief is when things get real and fucked up. And it felt like a gambler's escalation. And it's it's so telling in this that Stan's immediate reaction is like, but why? Like, why (laughs) wouldn't you do that? Why would you not tell them that it was real and, you know, you can get a bunch of money from them for talking to their dead child? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. For the most part, Guillermo del Toro stuck more to the book than the movie. But one difference was that in the book, at one point, Stan becomes a reverend. And so it has that shift into taking advantage of people and in with that religious subtext. There's a bit of that in the original movie, but in the book, I was just like, oh, I'm fascinated why they didn't make that choice. I think because it would have been just another layer to add and would have maybe taken a little bit longer. Yeah. I am so fascinated by the way that they talked Mm -hmm. a bit about, you know, even like the notion of a preacher, I think Pete talks about, like some people just want to unburden themselves. People want to be seen. And where do you draw the line of, like you said, like saying what's in someone's pocket and that agreed upon, this is fun. We're having fun versus preying upon people and their weaknesses and how the first act of the movie is this more agreed upon safe space. And then the second act is just going from like the fish moving into the bigger pond. And then Lilith is who you're contending with rather than Clem, who's very open about his manipulations. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I I love Pete and Pete's sort of code of ethics and this, and that he is like, mm -hmm. he's like, Oh no, like I've started to go up to this line before and you shouldn't do that. Like, you know, he's got his book. He, doesn't want to share his notebook with Stan because he's afraid that if Stan knows these things, then Stan will 
take advantage of people and go too far, which uh, is is absolutely true. Uh, yeah, it's very correct to, to fear that. That is yeah. a very valid worry. Yeah, and it's really interesting because Pete feels about this book like it is magic. It is as magical as things can get, really. And that's so cool. It's because it harkens back to this longstanding tradition of, you know, alchemists protecting the secret knowledge with code or just, just jealously protecting that because if everybody could do it, they wouldn't be as useful. So um, definitely an element that reminded me of the prestige, just like the magician who like, whose greatest secret and art form is their trick. Yeah. This is about where we are introduced to all the other characters in the uh, carnival. You have Miss Molly, who is this young, innocent, yeah. Ingenue who likes to redirect electricity through her body. That's her whole trick is she can get shocked and survive pretty good. Electric girl. Funnily enough, the big sign for her says Electra, the electric girl on the sign. And then they will make direct reference to the electric complex later in the movie. Uh, and I was like, <laughs> is that, was that intentional or is that just a, that's the thing I have. Yeah. That was another one I was confused by where when it's first presented, I thought it was like, oh, okay, we're preying on regular people in the 1930s, never having seen, never mind understanding how Tesla coils work and having any idea that even though it looks all dangerous, there's pretty much no actual charge that she's being electrocuted with. And then later in the movie, she's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm electrocuted so hard every time. It's like, what the fuck? Well, when you do that a lot, it'll fuck with your muscles. Like, you get twitchy. If you're doing it a lot, like, I remember being in middle school and there was a science presentation and one of the kids straight up, like, put his hand on the Tesla coil and there was, like, a big old bolt and it was fine, I guess. (laughs) They were just shocking us. And, I mean, it was, like, a small shock. It would give you twitches, but that was it. But I know that there are performers out there that perform with Tesla coils that you know, a lot of electrical charge will, you know, make your muscles twitch and cramp up, certainly. He makes no bones about the fact that, like, this circus really, it takes something out of people. Like, yeah. Yeah. Bruno's got real bad knees. He has a hard time doing a strongman act. And, you know, you've got Molly who's dealt with this. And poor Pete is incredibly alcoholic, incredibly dependent on it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, this is the point where we get them having to deal with the geek who he is injured too badly in retrieving him and is dying so clem gets stan to come with him to go drop the geek in an alley in front of a a church uh, so that they can take care of him and then pieces out to go to the diner to have some dinner and they have this discussion about how to get a man to go geek how do they replace the geek and this is something that's going to be very important later on and that you know he gets somebody who is a drunk who doesn't have anywhere to live, who is dealing with substance abuse stuff generally and gets him hooked on not just alcohol, but also poppy. And, uh, you know, we'll get him to temporarily fill in in this role as the geek just because he needs a job so he can pretend to be this wild man for a little while. And over time, we'll make him so dependent on him that he cannot leave. Uh, terrifying. I yeah. know it's uh, it's probably the most thematically important scene of the movie but i spent a lot of time focusing on just how good that dinner looked because they're having like steak and egg and hash browns and it looks so good that just looks like some good old-fashioned hearty carny dinner that i'm like i'm gonna make that for dinner and then i did and it was delicious and i was asleep in like 20 minutes 
Because that they shit make, is mad hearty. Yeah, they make like steak and eggs and like it, even like the sloppy eggs he has like during the rainstorm morning or whatever looks really good so good job cinematographers i think there's some sort of color balance there just makes eggs looks really good i mean they have enough chickens but uh (laughs) it's kind of interesting too because they leave this poor geek this man this person out in the rain in front of the halfway house and or they're like those they'll take care of him don't worry i'm hungry are you hungry and then they're eating this like beautiful effluent dinner with like silver and uh, Willem Dafoe tells the story of this horrifyingly predatory practice, which that in and of itself is really upsetting. That he has it down to such a precise science really hammers home the horrificness of how often he must have done this and how often others must have done this. And like, I'd never heard of a geek show before this movie. And then I look it up and it's like, oh, yeah, totally yeah. a thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the etymology of the term, you know, when you say I'm a geek for blah, blah, blah. I mean, originally it was a person who bit heads off chickens, but it's more than that, too. I mean, I would bite a head off a chicken for Star Wars. That is accurate. <laughs> um, I think the big theme of the movie is, and, you know, this goes with what we were talking about with the spook show as well, as of treating other people as subhuman to get up, to make some money, to push yourself up above them. is something that they do to somebody who, is perceived as lesser and homeless in this homeless and addicted in this case, and that everybody will then proceed to do to each other. And Stan in particular has no qualms about doing this to any and everybody. Yeah. He's a true capitalist. Yeah. He does create the electrocution scenario for Molly. He comes up with the idea of not just having a ball that she grabs and says that she got electrocuted, but having a whole electric chair on stage where she can, you know, really ham it up and then play to the audience and it can be a whole thing. And, and the, they, the major is really annoyed by this. Like major and Bruno just hate him because they've got his number from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, they know that mm-hmm. this guy is a con man and that he is trying to get in Molly's pants. And um, Molly for her part is perfectly happy for him to get in her pants. It seems like, but you know, mean, they're, they're super yeah, protective because they're, it is Bradley know, Cooper. The old yeah. guys that knew her dad and everything. Also, he is a scumbag. So The bit where he's like showing the stage and he's constructed the stage. I love that. And then there's a little bit of character design 101 here where Bruno's or not Bruno. Um, the major is like, what is this wheel thing? And he's like, oh, that's bullshit. I lost it at that. I loved that. It's so that's bullshit. And then yeah, uh, bring that back very shortly. Yes, I, I love how. He used, I mean, it's just such a great way of showing how theatrical minded he is and like, you know, and that power of, oh, I'm good at theatricality and I can bullshit people. Therefore, I am this unstoppable master, like puppet master. Oh, and there's a bit of dialogue here that, you know, we talk about how everything is just given to this guy. There's this bit where he's talking about his idea to Molly and he's trying to like razzle dazzle her and he has his sketchbook and he's like, oh yeah, my mom put me in, uh, in, I mean, it's no big deal. You know, I have talent. I know. And I could have like won a bunch of, my mom put me in a bunch of contests. I could have won all the contests, but it's just something that I do to like calm down. So every guy that I went to college with. Yeah. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) It just, it was, oh, oh, this old thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, no, thank you. Again, that brings a guitar to a party. 
like, Stan, again, this character really feels like he's supposed to be, like, 21, 22, and is played by 46-year-old Bradley Cooper. That's what I'm saying. In in 1941, it's a very difficult time. Yeah, Bradley Cooper does his absolute best. He does some great acting in this movie. I think he's incredibly miscast, but yeah. <laughs> you know, he does everything he's capable of doing, and he's fine. I kind of think this should have been a Timothy Chalamet role. Ooh. I don't think Timothy Chalamet is a guy that you would see wandering around the carnival and be like, hey, could you do some manual labor for me? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's yeah. fair. No. And then Zena has a quote earlier where she's like, you're good looking, and that's... I don't know about that. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you could be trouble. And he's like, no, I'm fine. And she's like, you're a maybe. And I do not like maybes. Yeah. You should trust her gut. Uh, I think she got what she wanted out of it. She does, at this point, lose her partner in Pete. Because Pete has sort of adopted Stan at this point. And Stan really wants his notebook. And he really wants to know everything Pete knows. And Pete only wants to teach him some of what he knows. Just like in the last movie. He had taught him everything he knows. I'm going to teach him everything I know. Sorry, After Dark. Or Near Dark. Um, Near Dark. After Dark is the screensaver. Different one. (laughs) (laughs) That's the scary movie with the flying toasters. Uh, (laughs) Pete is then begging him to get him some liquor. And he gets him some poison liquor instead of the normal liquor. And we know that he knows which one is which. Because Clem has very carefully told him, don't drink this shit. It'll kill you. It will get you drunk, but then it'll kill you. That's the drinking liquor, and he gets the poison liquor for Pete instead, and takes Pete's book, and Pete is found dead the next morning, and everybody just assumes that Pete did it all himself, drank himself to death. He's finally done what was inevitably going to happen to him. Both Brett and I were watching it, and he looked away, and there was this, just that one second where he takes that particular liquor, and I'm like, he did poison him, didn't he? You know, you yeah, he, really have- he checks to see if Clem is, you know, going to catch him, and drops the money in and takes the liquor that's supposed to be used for embalming um, yeah. and other things instead and gives it to him. And he's, he's a real fucking scumbag, Stan. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit, ain't he? This yeah. is the point where it becomes incredibly clear uh, what side of this whole thing he is on, which is then followed up by what I think is probably Bradley Cooper's best scene in this movie, other than maybe the ending, which is where uh, Sheriff Jim Beaver comes to town <laughs> to uh, shut down the whole thing, which I love when Jim Beaver shows up in a movie Good. and he is getting ready to arrest all the carnies and shut down the carnival. And uh, Stan jumps in and like notices that he has an extra rise in his shoe and figures out from that and from his walk that he has polio and notices, you know, the necklace on his neck with his, you know, mother's pendant on it and like uses these things that he picks up about the sheriff to manipulate him into not arresting everybody by just totally fucking with his brain. And the only person who would say you shouldn't have done that is is Pete, who was gone now. Everybody in the carnival is like, wow, Stan's the greatest. We all love Stan. Stan kept us from getting arrested now. I love this scene because you see the reason for the hubris that will bring him down. Yeah. Very noir. It's very, I don't know. I feel like there's some essay to be made about overlaps between Greek tragedy and noirs. Uh-huh. Oh, totally. He's I mean, hubris, tragedy. Before Pete goes, there's another line that he has, gotta love Pete, where he says, when you learn how to really read people, it means that you've been trying to deal with abuse. But a lot of the time, people who learn to read others like that 
are trying to stay one step ahead of their abuser. Yes, that is real. Like there has been definitely been like documented studies on that. Absolutely. They discussed that on that Tim Roth show where Tim Roth played the magical liar. He's like, ah, lie to me. That was the name of it. Yep. (laughs) Where Tim Roth just goes around and is like, hey, I bet you got a lot of abuse as a child. Come join my super lie solving team. (laughs) I I remember seeing a video a while ago that was like, you're not an empath. You just have a lot of trauma and you know how to read a room because you have to survive. And I thought I like it's funny because I also wrote down and highlighted that line in particular because it is true. I mean, it's honest and interesting to show that this pain came from somewhere and that ability to to then take that pain and and use it to lord your power over others and how Stan just really eats that up and he just loves how he's now finally able to manipulate people and play with them. The way, not just that we learn he killed his father, but how he killed his father. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cold-blooded. I mean, that's just figuratively and literally. (laughs) Ruthless. I mean, it was ruthless and it was cruel and... And performative. Uh, Again, he's such a showman, even from the beginning, this big dramatic, like he didn't have to do any of that. Yeah. He's bothered. But he um, bashed his dad's head in and walked yeah. out. Like, For all y'all listeners who aren't going to see this movie, which see the movie, it's real good. I know it's long. Go see it. He waits until there's a snowstorm going on, then opens the window in the bedroom and then just takes his father's blanket. And wraps it around himself and just watches his father free, his old invalid father freeze to death. It's horrifying. It's terrible. And, you know, there is some suggestion that he had been through some stuff. His father was an alcoholic, and that's why he doesn't touch liquor at the time. Yeah, we'll get to that in the Kate Blanchett section here very specifically. Yeah. Because we're coming up on the Kate Blanchett section because now that he's the hero of the circus, He's ready to fucking leave the circus and leave everybody else behind. So like he's, you know, trying to talk Molly into basically being the other half of this mentalism act with him uh, that he's you know stolen from Pete and Zena. And uh, Bruno catches on to him and uh, <laughs> Bruno beats the shit out of him, which it doesn't take much with the size of that dude. Don Perlman beats the crap out of him and Molly, of course, throws herself on him to keep Bruno from beating him to death. And uh, inevitably, in trying to keep her from leaving, he get he you know convinces her to leave, and we end Act One with them riding away in their uh, in their truck with all their stuff to leave the circus yeah. with the with that silent film like yeah. fade out with the circle, which I was like that was that was good. Some people can't get away with that, but this movie really did. There was also there's a there's a very important um, interaction with. Molly and uh, Stan, where Molly's like, maybe this is good enough for me. Yeah. And he's like, well, it's not good enough for me. So why would it be good enough for you? I mean, it's classic manipulation. Yeah, I know it's not good enough for you because it's not good enough for me. And look at me, I'm shitty. You're, you're great. Yeah, you're better than me. So therefore, it, you know, you deserve better. And so I'm going to make things better for you by making you do what I want you to do. Which is, essentially does not a setup that will last very long because he is yeah. going to immediately now that he is in charge of molly start talking down to molly and he separated her from the rest of her found family they go on to do their mentalism act so they're in the big city doing this in ballrooms now and they're using 
all the tricks from, you know, Pete's book to signal things back and forth to each other uh, so that it can seem like, you know, he is, he's telling all of this stuff with a blindfold on. She's, you know, giving him signals and how she is describing things and telling him what's happening without actually saying it until uh, he is doing this and Kate Blanchett just shows up. This is Dr. Lilith Ritter. Uh, she has total femme fatale hair and her name is Lilith. So if you meet her and you do not immediately run the other direction, then you're asking for it because well, she's a hundred percent that bitch. She looks like she just walks into a room and is like, Hey, I need to talk to you about this Falcon statue. I heard about <laughs> dramatic lighting <laughs> follows her from room to room. I know she has like almost yeah. literally the Morticia light on her all at all times. I was going to say like you either run the other way, but then I realized it would literally be, be asking for it because you would want her to step on you, which is another thing where I'd be like, okay, hold on. This street is too dirty for you. I think it's right of it. I am just weak in the knees anytime Kate Blanchett is like on screen in this film. But she is on, she is like infinite levels of noir. She was, she's like the, um, what, the nine foot tall vampire lady? Yeah. Um, yes. And I just, I, yeah. And that's all I got. And I'm in love and it's fine. I know it's bad. It's so bad. It's good. It's fine. She's, ben and I were, were talking about her and I was like, it's like if Moonstone from Marvel Comics, who is an evil psychologist, which is what we find out this character is was jessica rabbit like she just yes she's not bad because she has the hair does like the waves that are inexplicable how her hair works like that yeah she has gold supernatural element in the whole movie actually is her hair so pete blanchett just was just meant to be in mid-20th century period pieces yeah Mm -hmm. anything from the 30s to the 50s like or even 20s to the 50s like Put Kate Blanchett in it. Yeah. I do appreciate that despite the fact that, like, it's the most heavily telegraphed, like, she is trouble. <laughs> We're still like, I will watch another hour of this. And, like, I know what's going to happen, but I'm fine with it. Like, please let me just. Oh, God. Just the, again, the hubris of Stan thinking he's the one with the upper hand being like, why don't you hold on to the money? Like, this is an old con trick I'm doing on her. Like, stand, Bubba, you are, oh, you are in snow <laughs> over your head. Yeah, because he, so she calls his bluff on this thing and is like, well, if you're such a great psychic, what's in my purse? It's the old Bilbo trick. But he does manage to figure it out because it's, you know, it's a little clutch. There's only so many things it could be. He notices that it's heavy, that she's single, that she's here alone, that she's, uh, all these things and then figures out that it's a, uh, a revolver. He makes some predictions there that are a little wildly, uh, and he, it's a pearl handle and things like that. It's a little over the top, but it works. And he does this just long enough to, you know, get the upper hand on her and then moves on to the other man that's at the table with her. And then in an attempt to get out of this cycle with her, starts doing a spook show with this guy predicting that, you know, there's, there's somebody that's dead that he's close to and it turns out that this guy is judge kimball who does in fact have this and immediately wants him to do a private show for him to help him and his wife it turns out contact their dead child and so judge kimball is played by peter mcneil and it turns out that he is he is one of lilith's patients yeah and she is a psychologist and she slips 
stand her card over the course of this thing before he decides for sure whether or not he's going to do this reading. And Molly being the angel on his shoulder is like, no, you know, you're not supposed to do this. You should like definitely not do this and tell him that it's fake. He instead decides to go to Lilith's office and be like, hey, you gave me this card for a reason. Clearly, you know, lots of stuff about this guy being a psychologist. Maybe you can feed me some information and then I can manipulate this guy into giving me a bunch of money and then we'll split it. It'll be great. And he is rehearsing for this too. Like they showed him rehearsing for this where he's going to offer her something because he, he realizes that she's going to challenge him. So of course he needs her in his pocket and all this kind of stuff. And she has his connections and it's fantastic. On one hand, you have the same kind of skills at work classically and of course there's a lot of differences between a mentalist and, and like a therapist and that, like there's a difference between being a con man and a therapist yes hard stance there emily yeah i'm gonna make that hard stance as, <laughs> as much as the um medical insurance industry yada 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 but anyway i it's not the same then why is monty three card helped me with my emotional problem so much you got me there i mean it I tell him about my issues down by the docks. He scams me out of a wristwatch and I feel better. Whatever works for you, really. Actually, no, because there's a lot of people who don't believe in vaccines because of that. But anyway, (laughs) speaking of con men and women, you still have the kind of skills, whether they are intuitive or they are academic, to know people. And it's how you use them, right? You know, therapists would help you. This therapist, well, uh, this maybe. is also a therapist who is recording her sessions so she can then feed that information to a con man who is then using that to ruin her patient's life. She was already recording this sessions though, with the most incredible setup I've ever seen. That I'm like, I want that shit. I don't care if I, it is gonna like last two seconds because all there's magnets everywhere, but. <laughs> I'm still not exactly sure if her angle was more, ooh, I'm actually going to get all the money, or if it was a Cheryl Blossom-esque, I'm in the mood chaos. Oh, she doesn't care about the money. She makes it very clear from moment one that like she is not interested in money. She's got plenty of money. She has all these rich clients. So that's the thing where I'm like, oh, I don't know if that was part of her plot, or if that was really her whole deal. It was like, we now I've got like $150,000 in like 1941 money. I feel like it, she's, she's just the better version of Stan where he gets such a kick out of being able to manipulate people and he thinks, aha, like I'm so good at this now and I love it. It's delicious. And he wants the money. And then she turns that around on him and is like, you fool, like you're so small and simple minded. All you care about is money. You don't see the bigger picture of like just the chaos of toying with people. And I just, Love how she's like him to 11. Yeah, yeah I mean, it feels a lot less your way is harmful and my way is beneficial and more this city deserves a better class of criminal. Yeah. It's really interesting to me because I I feel like I took a stance in this at some point in watching it and deciding what was going on. There's a thing that's never really confirmed in it, but that I think like you can interpret which leads to Stan working for this guy, Grindle. He's a rich asshole who has caused another woman's death by causing her to have an abortion. He also says in the last minute confession that he's hurt a lot of other women over the course of this obsession. And we do know that he was at one point 
working with her, that she was, you know, his therapist and that he doesn't go to her anymore and that she has a large scar down the, down most of her abdomen that we don't know the source of. So like my theory is that this is all a plot where Stan is just a device to get at Grindel and Stan was just unfortunate enough to try and one up her and to do it successfully enough that she was like, all right, now I've got what I need. Yeah, she has her contingencies and she is good to go. Like she she basically like winds him up, kind of a Hannibal Lecter, like Silence of the Lambs Hannibal Lecter, like I'll give you quid pro quo. I need a truth if I'm going to help you. Yeah, she claims the only thing she wants from him is the truth about him and yeah. lures him into having therapy with her that she learns to use uses to learn things about him, which she will then use to manipulate him. Yeah. And he's really bad at therapy. As soon as he starts to uh, come face to face with some things, he's like, I'm out, I'm going, I'm going home. This is bad. Oh, yeah. Sit me, doc. Yon, sit me. me. I was not going to drink, but now I am. It takes one therapy session to be, you know, I am drawn to father figures who I then feel a compulsion to destroy. Yeah, and he tries to flip that on her, too. He's like, oh, all you ladies have mommy issues or daddy issues or blah. And she's like, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, she him all the information on the Kimballs so that he can go to their house and basically pretend to talk to their son who died in the in the war, in World War One. The mom is incredibly sad that this kid died and she specifically did not want him to go join the army. Clearly... They're rich enough that they could have, you know, bought their way out of it. But the dad okayed it, encouraged him to go, and he died. He manipulates them into saying they're going to be back together soon, so it'll all be fine. And things go so well that they recommend him to their creepy friend. This is uh, Ezra Grindel. Oh, I didn't mention Mrs. Kimball is played by the great Mary Steenburgen. Always happy to see. Yeah. I was so excited when I saw her. Like, that was such a wonderful surprise. She is so delightful at everything she's in. Yeah. And she recommend him to the intensely fucked up Ezra Grindel, who is played by Richard Jenkins, who is the only person in this movie that I think is genuinely scary. He is a scary man. Him and yeah. Anderson, his bodyguard, are like, oh, these are bad people. Everybody else in this movie is like, they don't think they're bad people. They're good people just trying to get by. There is no question in Ezra Grindel or our mind that he is awful. Oh, more... It, fantastic casting. Anderson is played by Holt McCallany, who you might recognize from Mindhunter as yeah. Agent Phil Tench. Like, he is wonderful, and I'm so happy anytime he appears. It's built like a brick wall, too. Yeah, like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. I don't know if it's because I've seen him in Mindhunter, but like, he's playing the goon role, but he also has like this incredible pathos, which is another one of those things that I think Guillermo del Toro does where he has these characters that even though they're background characters, they still have pathos. It, uh, yeah, the fact that he was like, I care about my boss. I was like, really? Wow. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't ever find out what the deal is with Anderson, but he is like, I owe him more than you could ever imagine. Like, I mean, even- there is no question that he is there to ruin Bradley Cooper's life if possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he he knows that Grindel, that she knows Grindel, that Grindel was her, worked with her at some point. She lets it slip that this is true. And uh, he's like, well, I need something to get me started on him. She gives him some information. We don't know what that information is until 
He's taken to Grindel's house, taken to one of his many weird featureless rooms and put in a chair and immediately put in a lie detector test, like upon entering, they take his watch. They take all of his stuff before he can come in, leave him completely helpless and then put him in a lie detector before Grindel can even talk to him. Um, I was like, and, is this a prison? Like, what the fuck is happening? Like, this is a very up. scary man with a very scary house. Yeah, <laughs> with like police officers in it. With like Not a nice cement floor. castle. It's definitely a huge ass like castle, but it looks like it's made of bricks and cement, which is gothic ass garden and everything. Mm. Yeah. They start putting him through the lie detector test. He is uh, thrown but recovers pretty quickly and just as like they're starting to ask him questions that it's going to be pretty clear that he can't answer without lying he uh claims that he is having a vision and that he's you know seeing this girl that grindle feels guilty about and that she is is forced to miscarry by him and died as a result and this is not something anybody could possibly know nobody knows this about him how could he possibly have guessed this? And, you know, he's got Grindel wrapped around his finger for this one thing, but he's pretty much out of other stuff to tell him at that point. And, you know, goes back to Lilith after this. So this guy has agreed to pay him a large sum of money to continue to do this. And he goes back to Lilith and is like, hey, I'm, I got to get some more information from you. And she's like, absolutely not. There is no way there. I'm, I'm the only person who could have told you that. So I'm not giving you anything else. You're going to have to figure this out on your own. And, uh, he, you know, does make a copy of her key and breaks into her office to steal some of that information and then goes to the public library because the public library is the real hero of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Want to stalk people? Bribe your local librarian. Yeah. So he goes in and finds information about this girl who mysteriously died, disappeared, finds, uh, you know, a, a postcard that was supposed to be sent from her to her family and gets all this information so he can further manipulate him. And proceeds to do so. Meanwhile, Molly is like, this is awful. We need to leave. You're going absolutely insane. None of this is okay. Especially since Grindle is, he's not a large man, but he's a very scary man. And Anderson is a very large, scary man. Uh, also, very important to note is that every step of the movie, as Stan escalates and worsens his behavior, it is preceded. Every time by his promising, I'm just going to do this one time oh, and, yeah. then else, and then else, and then we'll stop. Just one last con, baby. His narcissism, it, it reminded me a little of Uncut Gems in that exploring that, I don't know, it it feels like, hell, we, with the alcoholism, we're obviously exploring addiction and the way that Stan's narcissism is almost his addiction well and that's the thing about his narcissism profile is that he loves a challenge right as a con man he loves a challenge and that's the main way that lilith sets him up because she's like oh i could never tell you this information oh i'm just a woman that's lonely but you could never understand me. They start going through a series of having therapy and fooling around in various combinations. And we do find out about Stan that uh, not only that he killed his dad, which we kind of already knew, but that he is incredible. He was incredibly resentful of his dad because his dad, like Pete, became an alcoholic and his mom left him for another man and ruined their lives all because he his dad just wasn't man enough. His dad just couldn't provide, couldn't do these things. 
And that's where he has <laughs> achieved this idea of being better than people and burying people is he, he wants to be the guy who steals the girl and leaves the drunkard behind rather than what he saw from his dad. He wants to prove that he's better than everybody and that he's not like his dad. He's not a loser. Yeah. And he has to be the main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile. This is where we also see that in their fooling around that Lilith has a very large scar down the middle of her chest from an undisclosed violent act. It didn't take me a second with that one because I was like, why are they showing her chest? Why are they giving her a scar? This seems so random, but you're right. It, it does tie back, I assume, to, to Grindel, or at least that would make a lot of sense and I think really inform the story in a way that I found funny because that was so subtle and crafted. And then there were so many other parts of the movie that felt so on the nose and telegraphed. And I just, I thought that was interesting, that moment of here are my boobs, but in a meaningful way was like yeah. the more subtle element. And it yeah, wasn't think, her like boobs. It was right. just her open, like the between yeah. her, like on her side boobs. I think there's multiple ways to read it. It can be a hint to Grindel being involved in all this stuff. And that's what she's trying to get revenge on. Or she is trying to show vulnerability yeah. at this moment where he is, you know, starting to think uh, that maybe she's manipulating him. She's like, oh no, I am just an injured woman yeah. that, yeah, you know, really just her. want to protect. Yeah. I do love, I loved seeing that escalation throughout and, and we'll get to the end, but I just, cause at first when she gets to the point that she gets to with him in terms of feeding him bullshit, I was like, what is this? And then I realized what she was doing and I was like, oh, clever girl. Clever yeah. Girl. <laughs> yeah. And I think at this point, Molly is like out. Yeah. Molly is yeah, almost ready to go. Yeah. And we find out and she finds out as well that the arrangement that he has reached with Grindel is that Grindel is going to give him a very large sum of money and he is going to make Grindel's dead ex-girlfriend appear to him where he can see and possibly touch her, which is not possible. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that that was like his, he he was like, oh, if you can like read my mind, you can bring back my dead girlfriend. That clearly like that's the next step. And I was like, really? These superpowers are not related. Yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. At I don't any get the impression that he wants to bring her back to life, but that he wants her to connect him in the way that he can be like, no, really, baby, I'm sorry. I know, but <laughs> they just give they like psychic powers yeah. with like religious mm-hmm. ph- supernatural phenomenon. And I'm like, those are two different franchises. You're getting your Gene Grays in my Hellboy. <laughs> The way that he describes his power is like, that's another problem that he has is that he's not specific enough about his power. And he thinks that's, that's one of his Jonathan Edwards. Also, I know that's historically accurate. I'm not criticizing the movie. I'm criticizing the people of the era. Yeah. I'm criticizing you. 1890s occult bands learn your superpowers better. (laughs) Take that pre-World War II America. Yeah. Fuck you, Alistair Crowley. <laughs> I was going to say it. You've taken it back. You've taken it back for a minute. We're even. We're even, we're even now. But this scene where he's like, you have to manifest my dead wife or my dead girlfriend or whatever was really like intense because you could tell that like, okay, now Stan is out of his fucking league. He is handed a masonry brick full of cash. And there's um, the, the goon there too. Like staring him down, and he's like, "This man is completely in over his head." And to me, what's so important is that 
despite that, he is never out of reach of the ladder to climb mm. out of, mm. and he never reaches for it. At any point during any of the proceedings, he could be, uh, that's actually not how my powers work. Yeah. It's just, just like we talked about with Samuel yeah. Jackson and Eve's Bayou, right? Where like at any point he could walk away and survive this. Yeah. But he doesn't. Yeah. He refuses. He refuses to not have the last word. He's not a forward thinker. Take the money he's already got and be like, all right, pack your bags. We're hopping on a train again. The fuck out. Right. We're going to like Kentucky and we're just going to chill there for a few years. Like we're, gonna we're, go to- we're, we're never coming back to Buffalo. Don't have to worry about this. There's plenty of other places we're going to grift our way through. He wants to live in Buffalo forever anyway. Uh, Honestly. Yeah. What is with Buffalo? Like a lot of. Here with the Toro, real fascinated with Buffalo. Yeah. That was uh blowing babies. Yeah. yeah. I mean that because that was where Jim Beaver lived in the other movie as well. What are you gonna I'm do? Kidding. Root for the Bills? <laughs> They're the Bills. And that was and the core of the movie. And yeah. if you are a Buffalo Bills fan, full offense intended. <laughs> in a lot of ways, Stan is the Buffalo Bills of this movie. <laughs> And I guess As if I'm one to talk, I'm a Giants fan. My team not doing too hot these days. I mean, I don't know if he's the Buffalo Bill of this movie. If uh, well, not Buffalo Bill, like the Buffalo. No, those are. I know, I know, I know. I was like, uh, those are two extremely different things. I know that, that is a very important S on the end. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I just like I don't know about sports, so I'm gonna bring it back to crime novels because I know about that. Yeah, so Stan is like. You know what? I know what I'll do. She looks kind of like Molly. So I will bring in my girlfriend who already thinks that we shouldn't be doing this to pretend to be this man's dead girlfriend that she loves so much. And Molly's like, fuck that. I'm leaving. Yeah. And it yeah. goes all the way to the train station, at which point he he chases her down and convinces her to come back. To be fair, at this point, he's pretty much dead if he doesn't do this. He has gotten himself in well over his head. Molly knows that. So agrees to do this, but says specifically, like, after this, she's out. Like, there's no coming back from this. I wish I had Molly's judgment because if a friend came up to me and said, hey, I need your help with this plan I have, full disclosure, I need you to pretend to be a ghost. My reaction would be, I am in. No, I have no follow-up questions. Yes, what are we doing? It depends. Like if I'm like, okay, I would love to be a ghost. However, am I being a ghost for a mob boss? Because like, if am I going to drop my person the meaning of Christmas? Yeah, but am like in a pre- way, am I going to pretend to be Jeff Bezos' dead girlfriend? Is that <laughs> well? And as soon as like you see the like crimson peak dress, I was like, yes, absolutely, I would be a, a ghost in that dress. Put cover me in blood. I'm ready. That sounds yeah. Like- yeah. Only Meanwhile, we find out why they got Mary Steenbridge to play a character who's only in this for five minutes. Yeah. Because she murders the fuck out of her husband. Because she's yeah. like, well, if we got to die to be with our my son again, you owe me that. So I'm just going to fucking kill you and kill myself and then we'll be together again. That is a hell of a scene. To go back to this fake ghost scenario, in the scenario <laughs> where a friend has come up and said, we need to pretend to be a ghost. And I've agreed. And they're like, great. Put on this gorgeous dress and drench yourself in fake blood. 
at that point, I'm like, this is the greatest plan of all time. I still don't know what we're achieving, but I've never been more into a plan in my life. Then I will ask you to be a ghost if you ask me to be a ghost, and then we'll just do it forever and ever. To That's deal. Better. That's okay. better. Yeah. It all depends on who's involved, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, there are people that I would not dress up as a ghost for. I, I'm trying to think of who I'd say no to in that case. Not Kate Blanchett. I'd say yes to her. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. You have no Blanchett. If Kate Blanchett, Blanchett said she needed me to act, pretend to be a ghost, I'm like, I know this is going to end with you killing me for real, but what am I going to do? Say no? You know I can't do that. <laughs> I am physically incapable. <laughs> if it's a, look, if this is the Greek tragedy and my fatal fly is over devotion to Kate Blanchett, I'm just going to fall on that sword. Yeah. There are worse ways. I put that on my tombstone. Yeah. We'll be like, I get it. The wildest thing about this scene, this climactic scene here with Grindel, is that he has an opportunity to get out of it. You know, they've set it up. Molly is there. She's waiting. It's going to be at a certain time. She's going to appear at the gate. He manages to get Anderson to leave them alone. So he doesn't have to worry about this Hulk dude beating the shit out of him if this goes sideways. So it's just him and Grindel at this gate. And Grindel says, look. You told me to make her appear that I need to rid myself of these sins, that I need to confess this stuff. I don't think I've done the work to do that. Let's call it off, which is exactly the opportunity he needs. It's exactly what he needed to happen. But he's made this plan and he's so confident that he can work this dude that he's like, no, let's go ahead and do it. Let's we we're here. It's negative two degrees in this lovely garden in buffalo it's snowing why not now and so he goes ahead with this thing and of course he can't control this guy he tried he's he's convinced he's going to get him down on his knees and then you know he's not gonna rush forward and bother molly and immediately he does and realize like molly can't go through with it molly is like oh this guy is legitimately heartbroken and has issues and needs help I can't do this. And he's like, wait, who the fuck are you? You're not my girlfriend. Anderson, come beat the shit out of this guy for me. At which point, uh, he does really the only thing that Stan has left to do, which is he beats Grindel to death and takes off for the car with Molly. Anderson gets there just in time to stand in front of the car as he runs over him with Molly in the car. And then if plausible deniability was an issue, he backs over him again. Yeah. Um, if he couldn't, he could have told Molly, I was just trying to get you out of there. I just needed to survive. But he's much more interested in murdering Anderson at this point. So he doesn't get one up on him. There's, it was very graceful how this like homicidal tendency in Stan occurs through this movie, especially with like when he's punching, like he gets hit in the head with a rock by the geek at the beginning of the movie. And then he's trying to, subdue the geek and he almost kills him probably like that guy died in the ditch from complications but you know in other movies it was like you you probably wouldn't have that kind of telegraphing in either like in such a graceful way as this movie did where you know now he's like okay i'm in trouble i have to go until somebody stops breathing i feel like for stan other human beings only exist to him in three categories you're either an accomplice, you're a mark, or you're a middle-aged man he needs to murder. <laughs> I mean, it's just, single people can be going through various 
stages of those those categories. Maybe not middle-aged man for everybody, middle-aged person perhaps. A good, a good chunk of the cast. He gives Zena, but he wants Molly. He gets Molly, but he wants Lilith. He thinks he's got Lilith, but that doesn't work out great for him. He only wants the ones that will next further him in his in his single-minded quest for his own ego. He wants, uh, I want the one who can teach me the routine. Now I want the one who can do the routine with me. Now I want the one who can help me become a ghost-talking super scam artist. Yeah, and he never stops being a con artist here because, like, they park the car... And he's like, all right, Molly, get out. And he starts breaking the windows of the car. Like he's going to pretend that the car got stolen and it has nothing to do with them. There's no way they were involved in this. Molly on the mean, meanwhile is just leaving. She's just gone. She's like, all right, this is over. Like yeah. I, I was already going to be out. And then I've actually seen what a son of a bitch you are. I watched you murder two people that you didn't have to murder. The, the only thing that bothers me about this whole section is the reason Anderson runs out is uh, that he hears a report on the radio about the Kimballs dying, which seems like a hat on a hat at that point, considering that like Grindel's going to call him out anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem too necessary. I imagine that Anderson could have heard Grindel being like, what the hell's going on? And that would have sufficed. But, you know, sometimes you have to hear it on the radio, I guess. <laughs> it's not a real movie unless you happen to see or hear the news report about the very thing that's going to uh-huh. affect your plot. No. Nah. <laughs> just the sound of the spinning newspaper for people for yes uh, so Molly's done but he only has one person left to turn to he's gotta go see Lilith his best friend his accomplice the the girl who loves him clearly and he's a woman who loves him not that against girls but yeah for Stan everybody is is pretty much the same to him that's yeah it's a um, point yeah he goes to retrieve all the money from the safe and she is helping him get everything together to get out of there. He seems really upset. So she's just going to help him out. And then she's turning on the recording and everything at this point. And he freaks out because he realizes that all the piles of money are just ones. There's no, none of the hundred dollar bills, none of the stuff he put in there. And he is ready to, to, to fight Lilith, kill Lilith. He's doing this all on a recording so that, you know, it's, it's clear how just insane he is. She calls security and he decides that he's going to use the phone she's using to call security to choke her to death. But they bust through the window and he uh, he decides to make a run for it and uh, has to evade security and police and eventually hide among the, the chickens on the train to get out of town safely. Device, story device there for a train full of chickens. At that point, that's where I was like, oh, I see where this is going. I will say when, when he's in the scene with Lilith, she is asking very pointed questions during that recording. It's almost like she knows exactly, well, because she does know exactly what to say to uh, exonerate herself. That was a master class in gaslighting. It was horrific. Like that was the most horrific part for me, other than obviously the ending, but just the way that she played him and was saying, you know, oh, you've been my patient this whole time. You're clearly unwell. Yeah, it was just, I thought that was marvelous. It was so horrific. Yeah, and you know, even if you're rooting against him at that point, it makes your stomach turn when it yeah. happens. Oh no! Realize the implications of the situation, and yeah, then he does, and he's like, "Oh yeah, oh wow, okay, I have been bested." Mm-hmm. He's not not quite as dumb as our, our previous protagonist in Near Dark, who still doesn't know what vampires are at the end of the movie. But he he is 
very played throughout this this whole bit ends up escaping and we get a bit of a time jump here it's unclear exactly how long but you know suddenly he is in a lean to a shack you know with a several other you know homeless folks in a camp he is warming himself around the fire and uh wants some liquor but they're tired of him bumming off of them without paying for any of it so the guy who owns the bottle demands some sort of payment and he gives him the last thing he's got which is his watch that he stole from his dad when he killed him he gives it up and gets drunk and then wanders off and comes upon a carnival. Oops. Yeah. And a flat circle, like <laughs> Matthew McConaughey said. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, Matthew McConaughey does not lie. This scene is so mm. economical because, like, you could spend so long on this, but like, it's done so elegantly that, like, at this point, I felt like I knew what was going to happen. But it's not entirely clear. This feels the, like fate. This yeah. feels like divinely ordained by his own fuck ups that he was always going on like fate. That yeah. everything we've ever seen him on from the first moments that Stan is on screen could only ever have been leading him towards this. It is so noirish and I love it so much, this ending. Yeah. By this point, we're starting to guess what's going to happen. He doesn't know. He's still so full of himself that he comes in here thinking that this drunk man with this huge beard who is stumbling, who is in bad shape, who's uh, clearly not been sleeping well, is just going to come in here and sell this guy on a mentalist act. And yeah. the guy's like, no, uh, we don't really we don't really do those kind of acts. It's unclear whether they really don't do those kind of acts or whether like you wouldn't sign this guy up anyway. Like you wouldn't take him obviously it's, it's not gonna work out but he's he doesn't he can't do anything for him he's got to go ahead and leave sorry there's no help he can get except he does have one job that you know it would just be a temporary thing they need somebody to temporarily just fill the spot for a geek he could just pretend for now for a little bit to be a geek and then it wouldn't be very long but which which is exactly how willem defoe describes to him how you get yeah. a guy to go geek um step by step step for step yeah play by play and it's interesting too because he has in his office he has the radio and the dead baby that he's like oh i got this from some other carnival some while ago closed and, down yeah yeah and then stan is like enoch mm -hmm. killed his mother and the guy looks at it and he's like yeah it's a good bit yeah i like that <laughs> which and I was, for a minute in this film, I was convinced that Enoch, the baby, was like the baby that, what are, what's her name? Dolly or whatever her name is. I can't that she was forced to have. After seeing the film, I'm pretty convinced that baby is a um, carnival-like chimera. Like, it was put together by people, especially the eyeball thing. It's the mermaid, the monkey on the fishtail. Like, it's, uh, I can't remember what the word is, humbug. Yeah, and I'm kind of glad that the evil baby wasn't a, wasn't anybody's actual evil baby, but I was expecting it to be for a minute. I I don't want to leave talking about the scene without talking about Bradley Cooper's fantastic yes. performance in this scene, oh. because when he proposes that he become a temporary geek, the laugh that Bradley Cooper gives here, this sort of like amused but heartbroken. How could it have been any other way? Has my life really come to this laugh that he drops is just, 
Yeah. And he says, yes, sir. I was born for it. He knows exactly what is happening. He knows exactly what will happen. And still, there's just nothing left for him to do but go down that road. It's the only moment of clarity that he has in the whole film. The only like true amount of self-awareness that he finally has is in that horrible moment. Yeah. It was amazing. Like and even his voice changes like that yeah. sale that like that salesman con man voice he has just slips away and there's just more of an bit more of an accent in that last line. Yeah, you can watch the process. You can watch the thoughts on his face and in his voice and his performance. Like you're there every second with him as he is just taking in this reality. Oh, it's so good. And then we have a credit scene where we focus on the baby, which I'm like, I mean, I guess you guys made it. So we have to look at it. I would have preferred looking at the at the handmade fake electric chair. But like the spider lady. <laughs> guys, Nightmare Alley feminist. Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's not like it's one of those things. It's not feminist, but I think it is definitely in the way that the women are treated, that the agency that they have that the powerful and victorious force that grinds down this narcissistic man is Kate Blanchett. And even Molly, like, gets out of here unscathed. Like, another film would fridge her. Yeah. And that's something that I think is really remarkable about Guillermo del Toro's movies, that even when they're, like, a little bit rote, even then, the female protagonists do have a lot more going on. Like, Crimson Peak was just really pretty scenery and uh, including Tom Hiddleston, but the protagonist actually did shit. And with Molly, like the fact that she leaves. I was trying to notice, I don't think it passes the Bechdel test. No. (laughs) I feel that it's a movie that can't really pass the Bechdel test. Because it is so limited third person of Bradley Cooper. Like half the time. Sure. It's it's like in the early scenes, it's just shooting over his shoulder. And I was actually surprised to see there was one scene that stood out to me because it was just a little bit, but it was Molly on the phone, you know? And that was the first time I think that I had seen Molly just speaking to someone other than either Bradley Cooper or someone else. And said, oh, there she is on her own being a a full person. Yeah. It was interesting to me, but I do think, especially in comparison to the original movie, these, the women in in this movie had a lot more agency. Tony Collette was the one kind of, reaching into the tub and and Kate Blanchett is the one who's who the, the women have a lot more agency in, in this version but it, it is there are constraints to the film which I think make it l- perhaps less like obviously feminist or progressive as a lot of contemporary movies are nowadays because again of the, the setting and and the conceit so but yeah it did its thing yeah yeah I think it's as feminist as a movie set yeah. in the you know, thirties and forties can be when it's locked on following one dude everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, it's interesting that you point that out. Cause I think that is the only point in the movie that I could say is not Bradley Cooper is not in or just slightly off frame yeah. because it, it does follow him very closely, which I think the movie doesn't work. If you see everything, everybody else is doing, it only really works when you follow him. But I think you get an interesting group of different female characters, all of whom have their own inner lives pretty clearly, which is a lot more than can be said for movies that have a lot more female characters, even sometimes when they're the main character. Okay. So we talked a little bit about how this movie does or doesn't have 
LGBT representation in it. Does anybody have anything they want to add to that? Not really. Yeah, I am. Um, I, as much as I might like to stretch things or grasp at straws, I really can't say there's uh, queer content to be found in this movie. Yeah, like the the closest thing things get is like a community of found family. But I am also loath to compare. There's been so many movies about monsters that queer people identify with and while that is sort of a subtext that we can find where we can find the the element of the other that we can relate to queer people are not monstrous yeah it's not all james whale making frankenstein yeah Yeah. exactly trying Uh, to express his queerness through the mm -hmm. monster like it's not you know that's that's not everything i i do think like it can be said that i guess as far as queer content goes there's not really much to be said here but it does also like all of the outsiders all of the people who are living in the the circus and just getting by like we said those are the real decent people as as far as decent people exist in this world they are the people who are looking out for each other who are upset when people die when bad things happen to each other they're the people that care they're the people that matter the the people in civilization the rich people are are villains throughout they're not good people there is no example other than possibly the poor kimballs of anybody in society who is at all trustworthy or worth caring about they're all bad people yeah uh so i i think that's you know that is as much as this intersects with racial and social justice as well there's very little in the way of non-white people in this movie it's just something i feel like i say a lot about guillermo del toro movies I was thinking that too, because I think the, the black character in this movie certainly did not have any speaking lines whatsoever. He was in the foreground speaking at one point, but we did not hear what he was saying. I think the only black character that I have seen in one of his movies that actually has a significant part is Octavia Spence. Is that the from um, Shape of Water? Shape of Water, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Idris Elba in Pacific Rim. There we go. Oh, I mean, you see Drisalba. Well, you do also have Asian representation and Asian American oh, yeah. representation. Pacific Rim, I think, is is an, a movie that doesn't work without being somewhat globalistic and having yes. people from other countries in it. For sure. Particularly Pacific adjacent countries. It's definitely yeah. less racist than G Gundam. <laughs> what isn't? I think it does a good job of portraying characters with physical disabilities realistically and, and not necessarily as as bad guys or monsters in the way some movies we've talked about do. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the few places in the the sort of progressive spotlight that it shines is physical disabilities. Mental disabilities a little less so. I think it is more discussing the way that the world mistreats people with mental disabilities than actively perpetuating things itself. But I don't think yeah. it says anything particularly interesting about that other than we do bad things to people. Well, I think that Pete's line about how reading people is a defense mechanism is, I thought like that was enlightening to have that in a film. Because I know that it's more and more of a public discussion about how gaslighting and abuse affects people. And it's so complex that film has a rough time with it, unless it's like a documentary. But that line was really well placed came from a really good spot in the film and was was another one of those key parts of the narrative that may have been overshadowed by the intrigue that happens later but i think that just 
the fact that it was so pivotal was good representation for that kind of uh, that understanding of mental illness in that way or trauma i should say specifically i think we find a lot of horror movies deal well and interestingly with trauma specifically and not so well with almost anything else that qualifies as a mental disability or any sort of mental predispositions even i I think even alcoholism in this is treated very like it's largely the characters doing it but it is given a very like oh it's their fault they're fucking up they're doing this thing and and not much more considered than that yeah and of course the the one other thing we usually talk about here is class and i think this movie is commentary pretty much from beginning to end yeah this movie is dripping with class discussion yeah absolutely how people are preyed on, who they prey on, how they prey on them, what they get out of it. It is just class. This movie, oh, is saying master class in class. Yeah. yeah. Molly says, This is enough for me. And dude is like, No, it isn't. Part of his scamming is in service of social climbing. Yeah. yeah. I would say almost all of his scamming is in service of social climbing. I mean, whether Which it's is- just. Part of the reason why perspective or doesn't just actual take money. the money and get the fuck out. Why he doesn't just run away and hop on a train because like he can get the money, but the money doesn't matter to him as much as the playing the bigger rooms, wearing the fanciest suits, the nicest hotels, like getting all the respect and status and privilege that he wants to have and thinks he's he should have. He has to show he can beat everybody like yes yeah he's better than everybody he's the best if he doesn't if he doesn't beat this guy at the end who like gives him an out he he could just take this out and go and get the fuck out of there and maybe even manage to keep molly at that point but like he can't he pathologically cannot walk away from this no win scenario Mm -hmm. he's he is he is convinced that he is going to be the one that beats it Little yeah. Kirk, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I guess generally wrapping that up, would we recommend this movie to people? Do we think it's worth seeing? Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. Absolutely. Again, oh, yeah. love this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's really good. It is long. It's two and a half hours, but it is uh, on, on HBO Max now, free. So if it helps, you can very much watch the first hour. Take a little break, go for a walk, make yourself a little sandwich, then gear up for the next hour and a half. There's a built-in intermission point. Yeah. We didn't take advantage of it. You can make a night out of it. Intermission in theaters. would be great. You're watching this movie and it had an actual intermission. Well, it'd be cool. You could do like a dinner and a movie night and be like, all right, we're going to watch first half and then we're going to have dinner. And then all the food we were craving from the diner scene, they can serve. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I made all that uh, yeah. and steak and eggs. It, it it knocked me out like that. I wish I did that too. I'm like, is this how carnies ate every night? Because I get it now. <laughs> Just scamming people and eating good hearty food. Uh-huh. I also, I made it as if it is a fancy cook job to be eggs go here, steak go on this pan, everything get hot, then put it on plate. So you it's very fancy cooking. You staged it and everything. Mise en place? Sure. Five out of nine. <laughs> so two and, a, two and a half stars. I just did that with breakfast sausage. Now I just put the sausage in, break it up, cook it, add the eggs, add the cheese, stir it all up. Mm. 
either pour it into a burrito or into a bowl. I know there's got to be a YouTube channel that just like, here's how hobos ate 1930s migratory workers across America. Like, it's okay. Yeah. YouTube a hobo cooking like channel. Yeah. Which is like, here's how you make just the best fireside baked beans. Wrong soup. I think there is that out there. I'm sure I am. 500% sure there's one of those out there. Yeah, um, right. I'm sure they've had to know or something, but maybe they don't. I don't know. Short of the new Hobo Cooking channel that we want to recommend to everybody, <laughs> uh, what else would we recommend people to check out if they enjoyed this movie? Uh, Julie, do you have anything? Yeah, I think if you enjoyed this, if you love the carnival aspect, but you want the supernatural with it, then I would say Carnival is an excellent show from HBO. The one warning that I do have for that is that there are two seasons and then it ends rather abruptly. You get a couple of things resolved, but for the most part, the show was canceled and I was very disappointed because I wanted to see more. And I don't know why my partner made me watch it when he knew that I was going to be sad that it was over too soon. But <laughs> but it's got the it's got the whole carnival supernatural vibe and Clancy Brown. So we just love Clancy Brown. Everyone loves Clancy Brown. It's true. It's true. Emily, what have you got? I'm going to recommend an episode of The X-Files. It's called Humbug. And it is a fantastic episode. It's one of the best episodes that they did where they're investigating. It gets a little, a little silly like X-Files episodes do. But it does a really great job of depicting these former carnival workers who have like regular jobs as people jim rose is in it the uh god what is his name the guy with the puzzle guy god i can't remember his name the enigma he's in it there's a lot of great actors great character actors in it and it is a really fantastic episode for the time again it's since it's the x-files from 1994 or whatever there are some problematic elements like i love the x-files but this is if you ever watch an episode of the show watch this one so that's humbug Hopefully Jeremy will add the actual season number and episode number in the liner notes because I guess I can't be bothered to look it up on the internet in front of me. But anyway, check it out. Fantastic. Ben, what have you got? So if you like the parts of this movie where it's like, ooh, everything is tense and uncertain and there's twists, but also really sexually charged, then this movie feels real horny. <laughs> then let's step back to the era of the 1990s neo-noir with Basic Instinct, the pinnacle of the erotic thriller genre. Boy. Ooh. That's a nice little, like, snipered in yeah. cut there. Yeah, that was yeah. angle to approach this. Yeah. I wanted to approach from the, the noir angle as well. Uh, I was thinking about Double Indemnity, which is, is great. is one of the traditionally one of the best movies of all time in that list. But the... As this is a horror podcast, and I just watched it in this last year, I wanted to recommend Diabolique, which is a, a French black and white horror movie and has some of the best suspense of a horror suspense movie I have ever seen that has like a great build up throughout the movie to the end that I, you know, as somebody who's seen a lot of movies, this is a movie that's made decades before I was ever born and even watching it now, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I, I don't know where this is going. And it legitimately surprised me. And I, I definitely recommend people check that out because it's, it's great. It's another horror noir type 
thing. And it's really good. And not nearly as unsettlingly French as some of the French horror movies we've talked about recently, but <laughs> very, very good. Mm. Um, awesome. That's, that's it for us. Julie, can you let people know where they can find you and your work online or they can get a hold of you? Oh, sure. You can follow me on Twitter at the jumbles. I apologize in advance because it's mostly puns, but that's where you can find me making terrible jokes all day long. If they've been foolish enough to follow the three of us already, then they're right. used to bad puns. We're going to have a good time. We're gonna oh, have yeah. a good time. They, should, they know what they're in for at this point. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com, where you can pick up their books, including the brand new Immortals Phoenix Rising graphic novel from Great, Great Beginnings and the Glad Award nominated Renegade Rule graphic novel. Yeah. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and on my website at jeremywhitley.com where you can check out everything I write. And of course, the podcast itself is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified. Our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm and on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod. So come check us out. Talk to us. Tell us what you thought of this movie. We'd love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you would rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. That's the best way for us to find new listeners. I do want to thank Julia again for joining us. It was so great. Thank you so much for uh, bringing this movie to us. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. I had a blast. Awesome. Thanks thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so wonderful having you. Y'all are great. This is nice. Thanks again to Ben and Emily, as always, for joining me here. And thanks to all of you for joining us here and listening. We appreciate you so much. We will see you next week, and until next time, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by me, Alicia Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy, Ben, Emily, and special guest, Julia McCarthy. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening.